And uh, as we come back, we're going to need more and more volunteers. We're understaffed a little bit now already, just volunteers, people in the kids' ministry, people opening doors. Um, But we need you, especially as we come back. Now, I'm speaking to the people who are at home right now. Um, We need you not only to come back, but to come back and volunteer. We can't do this without you. We showed that video. We had so many people say, we love that video. It was so good. It was cute. The little kids, blah, 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 blah. We had one person sign up. So you can love it all you want. But that doesn't actually help. We need you to help us. You might not think you have the gift, but God equips those that he calls. And uh, so just one hour a week. Francis Lightcap is who you can uh, text or who you can email, and uh, she will get you in the right place. Now, let me read this text to us. I'm going to read John chapter 4, verse 27 through 45. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have a food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. But I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that what we believe. For we have heard ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. After the two days he departed from Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that the prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've realized this, but I have. We are numb, aren't we? Desensitized. And I hate to admit this, and maybe this isn't true for you, But it's definitely true for me. I remember Oklahoma City made a pretty big impact in my life. I remember Columbine made a pretty big impact in my life. And I remember seeing a commercial 30 years ago on the TV that was pretty sketchy sexually, and that made a pretty big impact in my life. But you know what? I hate to admit it, but when I hear of a terrorist attack, I just kind of think, oh, there's another one. There's another one in Paris. 
there's another one in Orlando. And when I hear of a school shooting, I just think there was another one. Just kind of numb, just kind of desensitized. It doesn't land like it used to. And we've become this group of people that are getting so much information and hearing of so many things that really the only way we can deal with it from a coping mechanism is just to kind of shut it out a little bit, to grow numb, to grow desensitized. We live in a 24-7 news cycle of, can you believe this? Can you believe they said that? Can you believe those person across the aisle did that? Can you believe they want to do this? It's constantly trying to feed our outrage. And we don't know what to do besides just to flatline ourselves, just to become numb, to become desensitized. We live in a world of shock jocks, whether they're reporters or whether they're pastors. Sometimes pastors are the worst. Let me be honest about that. They're always trying to shock you in some way. And we're overwhelmed and we're overstimulated. You only need to go to the airport. And maybe you haven't been in a year and a half or so, but I have. And I've got a lot of flights scheduled this summer. But you walk through an airport and you just see people who are zombies. Just looking at their phones, trying to get somewhere. You go downtown Greenville, and you just see people that are zombies. I dropped off my son the other day in high school, and I was watching these two kids because there's nothing that gives me more joy than to watch high school kids when they don't know you're watching them. You get so many sermon illustrations just from that. I, I don't like hang out at the high school. I'm not like the creepy old guy that does that. But when I dropped my son off from high school, I was watching these two people, these two kids, never seen them before, these huge backpacks with all these books, and both of them are on their phone. And one person didn't see the other person in front of them and walked into them, literally walked into them. They're both on the phone. Oh, there's somebody there. Just walking around like zombies with our phones. We're so numb. We're so desensitized, overloaded with information and overloaded with uh, options of pleasure. Now, there are some prophets that saw this coming. Neil Postman, I've quoted him before to you, but he wrote the wonderful book, which is um, convicting to read, to say the least, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in that book, he compares Adels Huxley Brave New World with George Orwell, 1984. Uh, Huxley saying we're going to get too much pleasure. Uh, Orwell saying that we're going to move into a totalitarian state. And here's what he says. What Orwell feared was that there would be those who banned books. What Huxley feared was there would be no reason to ban book, a book because no one would want to read one. Orwell feared we would be deprived of information. Huxley feared that we would get so much information that we would be reduced to passivity. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned out in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become captive to culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In the brave new world, Huxley feared that we're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that we would hate what would ruin us. Huxley feared we would love what would ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Now, that was written years ago, and actually, uh, I'm not turning this into a philosophical lecture. We're going to get to the text here. But actually, both have now turned to be right. Both of those streams have merged together, and the result is we are just flatlined. We're numb, we're desensitized, and we don't know what to really do about it. Well, what do you do when somebody's flatlined? We've got a medical team, so you don't need to do this, but you get a defibrillator. (laughs) 
and you rip that open, you put those pads on their chest, and you say, clear. I've always wanted to do that because I see it in the movies. It seems like it'd be so much fun. Clear. And you do that, and, poof, and you know, they come back to life. You shock them back to life. And what we see in this text is God shocks these people back to life. He gives them a new life rhythm. He puts their heart back into the rhythm of his heart. He shocks this Samaritan woman back to life with personal knowledge. And then he shocks these disciples back to life with a new perspective. And then he shocks these Samaritans back to life with an ultimate purpose. So let's look at those three things very quick. First of all, this Samaritan woman. She was numb. She was desensitized. We go from Nicodemus, this teacher of the law. The next scene we see is this Samaritan woman. The, all the disciples are off. They're getting their food for Jesus there in Sychar, which is a town uh, right kind of on the border in Samaria. And Jesus meets this woman, this Samaritan woman. It's so interesting because men didn't associate with women this way. And Jews didn't associate with Samaritans in this way. And this is all back in the text, so you'll have to go back to look. And he says, give me a drink. And she says, well, how can I give you a drink? And Jesus says, if you only knew who was asking you, you would ask for me to give you a drink. And I'd give you the living waters and you'd never thirst again. Gosh, just to have one interaction with Jesus on the earth would have just been unbelievable, wouldn't it? Just to see that twinkle in his eye and to hear him say that and try to figure out what he's meaning and what he's saying and know that he's giving you something but not being able to quite figure out what exactly it is. And she says, give me that drink. Please give me that drink. And he says, go, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he basically says, well, you're not lying, the fact is you've had five husbands, and uh, the guy that you're living with now, your living boyfriend, number six, he's not your husband, because you gave up on that marriage covenant after the fifth time. And now this sixth guy is not the one, and I'm now the seventh guy. Now, she was numb. She was desensitized. She had a string of awful relationships. She kept giving herself away. She was never probably really known by one of them. I'm not sure what the breakdowns were with all of those marriages, and we can't possibly know, but we know she was longing. She was longing for worship. She was longing for refuge. She was longing for purpose, for meaning, to really be known, to really be known by somebody and so, in verse 20, you can see it. She has this question. She says, our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is where we ought to worship. In other words, Messiah, now that I have you here, <laughs> now that I have the teacher of Israel, I've had this theological question for a long, long time. Are we supposed to worship here or here? And Jesus plays the whole thing off, and then he says, no, you worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm inviting you to worship. Matter of fact, here by this well, where you're trying to find refreshment and meaning with a broken relationship at home, you know what I'm inviting you to? I'm inviting you to worship. I'm inviting you to something else. I'm inviting you to something new. And then it picks up in our text when she says, are you the Messiah? And he says, I, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. And the disciples came back, verse 27. And look what it says. The disciples came back and they marveled that he was speaking to a woman. They marveled at that. Now let me say this for the record. I've said this before. Let me say this again. Christianity 
is not a chauvinistic religion. It's been made to be that way, modern criticism. But I've said this before, nobody has done more for women in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. Nobody. He, he changed the whole narrative when he came to earth on how we're to view women, on how we're to deal with uh, all the situations around caring for and protecting and loving and knowing women. He changed everything about valuing them and honoring them. He changed the whole game. And that's why the Jews were marveling. Now, nobody's supposed to be talking to this woman. Nonetheless, a Samaritan woman. And look at what it says in verse 28. She left her jar. <laughs> These jars were really, really powerful and critical. They were valuable. She left her jar, ran back to the town she was from, and she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, that's so important. Why? She doesn't say, come and you'll see the Messiah. I found the Messiah. She doesn't say, come and uh, find out this guy who tells us that we can worship him. She says, come and see the man who told me I everything I ever did. Now, the interesting thing is this. Everybody knew what she had done. Do you think a lady in a small town who had been through five husbands would not be well known? Everybody would know that. She'd be the gossip of the whole place. Hey, remember when she married Habib? That was an awful relationship. Then she married Issachar? That was bad too. And then remember when she married Jacob? Yeah, he still hasn't recovered. I'm making up those names, by the way. They're just like as Jewish and Samaritan as I could think of. But I know it's not Steve, Larry, and Bob, so I was just going with those. But she would be the talk of the town. Everybody would have known. She was a train wreck. She couldn't get her act together. She couldn't keep a man she couldn't figure it out. Now she's lonely and sad and giving it a shot with this living boyfriend who's probably a bum anyway. What does she realize? She realized this. Here's a man who knows everything about me and doesn't condemn me. He knows all of my sinful propensities, all my brokenness. Instead of condemning me, he invites me to worship. He invites me to merge my story of brokenness with his story of redemption. Could this be the Messiah? Could this, could this be the one that has the ability to make everything right? Could this be the one who knows me fully and also loves me fully? Could this be the one? Now, here's the shock for you. It's already been kind of hinted at in this service already by Neil. But it's a shock to your life that Jesus knows you personally. He wants to shock you back to life by reminding you again this morning that he knows you personally. He knows every, every sinful thing about you. It says in Luke chapter 16, I love this interaction. The Fer he says to the Pharisees, you cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Yeah, you can play that game of justifying your sin in front of men and pretending like you don't love money, but I know that you do, and God knows every one of your hearts. He knows, here's the deal, it's scary, but it's wonderful. God knows everything about you. Fedor Dostoevsky says this, there are things which a man is afraid to tell even himself. And every decent man has a number of things that are stored away in his mind. 
Isn't it so hard in this life? I'm not, I'm not sure why. Just to be honest with yourself, just to be honest with really who you are, what you struggle with, what you're dealing with, it's hard to even be honest with ourselves. Dostoevsky, who was a great psychologist of understanding the human heart, said every person had these things that they've hidden away that they don't want to believe are true about them, much less others. But here we see in this text, it is possible to be truly known and truly loved. And here's part of the gospel, not the whole thing, but I love this verse, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, while you're sinners, he dies for us. He knows you at your worst. Who else knows you at your worst? Probably not even your spouse, not even your best friend, not even your parents. Jesus knows you at your worst, your absolute worst. And to demonstrate love, He says, when I know you at your absolute worst, that's when I love you. I know everything about you. So he wants to shock you back to life with that realization. I didn't know we were going to read Psalm 139 when we planned this service. Uh, I actually didn't know that until Neil got up here to read it. It was in my text to read anyway. Because years ago, I was in a really, really, really difficult place. On the outside, everything was going great. On the inside, complete and utter depression. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to get back to Jesus. I just couldn't figure it out. My prayers seemed like they were bouncing off my office ceiling. The words I was reading weren't doing anything for me. I was preaching during this time because, you know, that's what you do. I'm still studying. I'm still in God's word. I'm still doing all that stuff. But I just felt so incredibly distant from where he was. I remember one late night I couldn't sleep. I finally got up. It was like 2.30 in the morning, went out and sat on my patio and turned on the light. I said, all right, God, what gives? I can't find you anywhere. I can't feel you anywhere. I'm just numb. I'm desensitized, and I can't find my way back to you. And I never recommend this, and I've never done it really before or after, but I said, I'm just going to flip open my Bible and see what happens. And I flipped open my Bible, and it was Psalm 139. And I read it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere I can go from your spirit. And I remember at that moment, here was the realization that shocked me back to life. God knows I'm distant and I don't have to reintroduce myself to him. I don't have to present him my CV again. I don't have to give him my resume. I don't have to work my way back to him. I don't have to find him. I turn and he's there. He knows exactly where I am. There's nowhere I can go from him. And that revelation of, okay, God, you're here with me. Even though I can't feel you, even though I sometimes feel like you're distant, you're here with me because there's nowhere I can go from your spirit and nowhere I can flee from your presence. And that's what shocked me back to life and induce my worship at 2.30 on a patio on a warm Sunday night. Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. So maybe what we need to do just in this first section is just to realize that and just to recognize God knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows what your struggles are. So you might as well be honest with him. And then here's the second point. He shocks the disciples back to life with a new perspective. Here the disciples were, they're just going through the motions, right? They're going to go get food. They bring food back. Uh, 
they say, Rabbi, eat something. He says, I love this text. He says, I have a food to eat that you don't know anything about. They, of course, get frustrated with that, just like, just like when my son comes home and eats like five meals before dinner's ready, and then we get to dinner, and uh, Elizabeth, well, I'm not going to go into the whole scenario, but Elizabeth says, I've made dinner, and Daniel says, I'm not hungry, and she says, has somebody given you a food to eat that I know nothing about? Because you're supposed to wait for dinner. That's how this works. It's like like 15. He's just going to eat his way through the house. Just let him do what he wants to do. But nonetheless, they were frustrated because they said, has somebody else brought him food? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me here and to accomplish his work. See, you think you get nourishment from all of these things in life. But as it says in one translation, I have a meat to eat. I love that translation. I have a meat to eat that you know nothing about. And a dollar's worth of earthly treasure won't buy you a nickel's worth of heavenly contentment. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. I don't need all this earthly stuff. My food is different than that. And then he says, didn't you say the harvest is like four months away? Well, look out. looks like the harvest is ready. Look at verse 30. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And then look at verse 30. They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Then look at 35 and 36. Then you say the harvest is four months away. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. What's happening there? Well, what's happening is this. The woman ran to town, told all the Samaritans, Jesus is still at the well, The disciples come and find Jesus. Now all the Samaritans are coming out of town. It's historically known that Samaritans wore white. And so here Jesus looks up with his disciples and says, you told me the harvest was supposed to be four months away, but when you look out there, these fields are white for harvest. Literally talking about the people who are walking towards him. Literally talking about the Samaritans who are walking out of the village saying, look at those people with their white tunics on. That's the harvest. That's who we're going after. A completely, completely new perspective. A new perspective of what sustains us in this world and a new perspective of others, which would have been so shocking to them. Why? Because the Samaritans from the Jewish mindset, the Samaritans were political rebels who were considered half-breeds. And Jesus says, yes, I'm coming for them. Nicodemus didn't get it figured out. The Pharisees can't get it figured out. I'm coming for those people. It's ripe for harvest. That would have been so shocking. And it's one of the things that would have shocked the disciples always would go back just to their comfort. That's why even after the resurrection, Jesus found them fishing again. Because they would always just go back to their places of comfort. And here, what he's trying to do is shock them into the vision of what Pentecost was going to bring forth. So how do we apply this to us? How are we shocked back to life? First of all, this. Our contentment will be found in doing the will of the Father in heaven. Yesterday, I have had the privilege, the honor to do um, a graveside service for Gene Rawls. And uh, read, as I do at every graveside service, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, which is we grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Put my hand on that casket talked about where she was, where she will be, and her life. I walked around the graveyard for about 30 minutes before, and I usually walk around the graveyard for about 30 minutes after a graveside service. It's just my personal thing that I do. 
And you just look at those names and you look at those numbers. Oh, he was 30. She was five. He was 97. He fought in World War II. He fought in Korea. They died within two days of each other. That's interesting. They died within 20 years of each other. That's interesting. You know, you just look at the whole thing. And the whole thing puts it in perspective. But you know what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11? Not 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but the verse right before 4.13, which gets all the press. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that you would win the daily respect of outsiders and you wouldn't be dependent upon anybody. In other words, make it part of the key of life is make it your ambition to do the will of the Father in heaven, whatever that will is. He's given you a sick spouse, emotionally, physically, psychologically. Your will is to love him or her. He's given you a raw deal in your family. Your deal is to bring glory to him, to practice his will. He's put you in a bad business. You work with integrity. You do the will of the Father wherever he has put you. That's what brings you life. And then you look at others differently. You know, if you think about it, we look at others through certain lenses, don't we? Let me ask you this question. What are the first five questions you ask somebody when you're getting to know them? That tells you what lens you look through. Where do you live? Seems like a nice question. What are you doing? You're sizing them up. Where'd you go to school? What do you do? How many kids do you have? What are the lenses when you're just getting to know somebody? What are the questions you ask? Because that will show you what your worldview is and how you're trying to size and figure somebody else. Because we're all looking at people through lenses that are not necessarily Christ-centered lenses. The disciples would have said, look at these political rebels, these half-reeds, these Samaritans. And Jesus says, look at those people. That's why it came. Completely different lens. I haven't seen it yet. But I'm going to, the documentary, uh, Framing Britney Spears. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it, it goes through how her meltdown that she had, we just watched. And uh, it, it has surfaced, that documentary has surfaced an old monologue from Craig Ferguson. I don't know if you know Craig Ferguson. He was Scottish. He's an old late night host. He used to be one of the late night hosts. Uh, he's not on the late night anymore. But in 2007, he did a a monologue. You can watch it on YouTube. A monologue, he said, I'm not doing any more Britney Spears jokes. I'm not doing any more. He goes on to say this. You know, what I recognize is that I would be laughing at America's Funniest Home Videos. And I'd see this kid falling over. And then I'd say, wait a minute. Put down your camera and help that kid. What is wrong with you as a parent? He said, that's when he kind of realized something was off. The audience started to laugh. And then he said, I think we're the ones holding the camera. He goes on to say, people are falling apart. This is a monologue for a late night show. He says, people are falling apart. People are dying. That Anna Nicole Smith woman, she died this week. And the audience laughed again. And he said, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It stops being funny. 
she had two young kids, and she was a baby herself. And we have to quit attacking the vulnerable people. Vulnerable people. Well, what he's looking for, I don't think he's a believer from what I know. I'd love to have dinner with him. But what is he looking for? He's looking for, can we look at people through a different lens? So let me just challenge you to that. Can I challenge you for the sake of the gospel this summer to get to know one person who's not like you? Maybe it's somebody of a different race. Maybe it's, hey, maybe if you're 15, hang out with a baby boomer. You don't even know what it is. Just consider it an older person. You're, you're a conservative Republican. Find a Democrat. Talk to him. You're a Democrat. Find a Republican. Get to know somebody and view them with an eternal lens. Because you know what? Everybody is looking for Jesus. They don't know it. It's not going to be shocking to this world if we love people that are just like us. But you know what will be shocking to this world? If we learn to love and serve and care for other people who are anything like us, political rebels, half-breeds. That's what he shocked the disciples back to life with. And then lastly, and this one will be quick. This is the shortest one, so don't you worry. He shocked the Samaritans with the ultimate purpose. He comes to these Samaritans. And they said, he told me everything I ever did. And so the Samaritans, not the Jews, he wasn't respected in his own hometown. The Samaritans said, could you stay with us? And he did for two days and many more believed. And look at what they said, verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves. Let me just say this. uh, To you who are graduating high school. And I have one in that mix, and so that's probably why you're on my heart right now. Uh, I probably should say this every year, and I've said things like this in the past. But to those of you who are graduating high school, going off to college, or staying here for college, whatever you're doing, you've got to own your faith for yourself. You've got to look at verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard it ourselves. It's no longer my parents' faith. It's no longer my pastor's faith. It's no longer my youth director's faith. It's no longer my friend's faith. We've heard about other people following Jesus, but now I've heard it for myself. Now I'm going to own this faith, not just for other people, but I'm going to own this faith for myself. Because what God says is true, and following following him is worth your life to own your faith to own wherever he puts you in life and to follow him with, with unabandonment. And now I speak to the boomers. Some of you have gotten way too comfortable. Some of you are not people that we want these students saying follow them because for 20, 30 years, your prayer life still hasn't changed. You haven't become more obedient or more joyful or more peaceful. You're just becoming more cynical and bitter and old. Was that too harsh? Am I... <laughs> I might be a little over the top right at the end. But could you become a person for this church that falls back in love with Jesus and falls back in love with the mission of Jesus and the ultimate purpose of Jesus, not just to keep us happy, but look at what it says. We know this is the Savior of the world. This is the Savior of the world. Quit trying to blame other people for your problems and recognize that Jesus has come to save the world. Now, I only get you for 30 minutes once a week. So you gotta, 
you got to combat the lies that you're going to hear the rest of the week. Last thing I'm done. In the Chernobyl uh, documentary, which is brilliant, the opening lines of that documentary on Chernobyl says this, what is the cost of lies? It's not that we will mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that we hear enough lies, we'll no longer recognize the truth at all. And what can we do then? Well, that's is left. But to abandon the hope of truth and content ourselves instead with stories. And in this story, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we're trying to do is find somebody to blame. And in this story, Anatoly Donatoli, he was the best choice of who we could blame. I fear that so many people live that way. Just going through life trying to find somebody to blame. Rather, be believing the truth about yourself and believing the truth of what God is trying to do and being the savior of the world. He took the blame of the world so that we could have the Holy Spirit. So right now, this afternoon, you can say, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, enjoy me. Holy Spirit, show me. Holy Spirit, lead me. I want to be led by your spirit for your will, for what I should do at this very moment. I'm going to live in step with you and with your spirit. And he shocks us back to life. So the, the next scene, we're not going to go into it, but it's so interesting. The next scene is this healing of this official's son. He goes from Nicodemus to the Samaritan, to the disciples, to the Samaritans in their town, and then to this official son who's shocked back to life. And Jesus keeps doing what he's doing. I don't know where you're numb or desensitized, but Jesus knows you. He gives you new perspective, and he gives you new purpose. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that we need not be far from you. We can't trust our feelings necessarily, but if we do feel far in distance, if we are numb and desensitized, if we have lost the plot of what you're trying to do in us and through us, we pray that we would start with worshiping you in spirit and truth. And then remember, like the disciples, that what nourishes us is to do the will of the Father in heaven. And the perspective of how we look at others is different than the lens we look through. And Father, we, we pray, I pray especially for those in college and those about to go to college, even those in high school, They've heard the stories, but may they understand them for themselves and realize that a, a lifetime of following Jesus is worth it all. God, we're all going to live, and this life is a mist. We're all going to die. So while we have breath and life, make us a spirit-filled congregation. Make us a people that walk into the harvest and challenge us by your spirit to reach out, to share our faiths, to talk about it, to talk about who you are. Make it natural and overflowing for us because of how much we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.